welcome to Steadfast. I am so glad to be with you once again as we continue our series, Able to Sin. Last week, we looked at the very first human murder as Cain took his brother Abel out into a field and murdered him because Cain didn't want to accept his own fault in offering a sacrifice to the Lord. Cain couldn't see that he'd already sinned, that he'd already chosen things that weren't pleasing to God, so instead he went to a greater sin in killing his brother. Now this week we think about the outpouring of sin, because as we fall into that descent, and all of us do, then we arrive at something we really don't like talking about, the consequences of sin. And we see different kinds of consequences. We see the natural consequences of sin, the sorts of things that simply come out of our behavior. If we're terribly mean to other people, they'll back away from us. They might speak unkindly of us. They may not be as willing to help us out. And then we have the moral judgment aspects of sin, where God brings judgment upon us for the things that we do wrong, the things that are displeasing to him and separate us as sinners from a holy God. And both of those are relevant problems. Now, the issue in every case of sin, I would say, is that we don't truly understand how much we're already recipients of mercy. And that's what we're going to see as we look at Cain tonight. Because Cain didn't understand what God had already done for him. The fact that he was alive at all to sin was God's mercy. The fact that as he offered an inferior sacrifice, he didn't have the right attitude as he came to offer that sacrifice. That was God's mercy. And the fact that he wasn't immediately killed himself as he killed his brother Abel, that was God's mercy. But here tonight, as we enter into Cain's mind and we hear his complaint to God in a moment, what we see is that Cain isn't thinking about those things. And how often is it in our own situations, we don't think about what other people are doing for us or, or what especially God is doing for us. We, we see how we feel like we deserve more. I thought about one of my very earliest clients when I was doing a lot of computer work. He, he was a wonderful man in a lot of ways and a good friend in many ways. But one of the challenges in being his computer tech guy was that he didn't really appreciate how much work it was to do the things he wanted done. I, I designed a website for him. I would repair his computers. And, and often our conversations would go like this. He, he'd call and if I wasn't available, he'd keep calling in a panic fashion until I was able to answer the phone. And then I'd answer the phone, and, and quite frequently his first complaint was how much getting computer stuff taken care of cost. And I was massively under, as a teenager at the time I started doing this for him, and I, I was charging way less than any shop would ever do. And because he'd been my longtime client, I continued to charge him very similar rates for years. And, and yet he'd be talking about, well, it just costs so much to have all this computer stuff done. And so he'd complain, and sometimes I'd offer, well, okay, I'll do a little more for free. It, yeah, I just talked to you for five hours trying to solve something and didn't really charge you for any of that time or most of that time, but okay, I'll do something else. And then immediately, what would he do? He'd want more help. And I don't think he realized, he, he was a very fine man in so many ways, I don't think he realized how much he was receiving. He just took it for granted. For most of the time he'd been really engaged in using computers in his work, I'd been repairing them for him. He hadn't been going to Geek Squad or, or someplace else and paying their exorbitant rates, and so it just was assumed. We probably all had people do that in regards to something that we do. Some, some, in some way, they, they presume on us, and they don't really even realize it. He wasn't a particularly selfish man. He wasn't trying to be unreasonable to me. I think he thought he was being eminently reasonable. 
You just didn't realize it. And a lot of times when we encounter God, we're doing the very same thing because God shows us so much mercy over and over again that we call him up and we say, God, why won't you just do this for me? I haven't been that bad lately. Don't you realize all the troubles I have? Why won't you do this? And what we're missing in that is how much God has been giving to us already. It's just gone over our heads because we just assume it's going to be there. And I think in some sense, that's where we find ourselves with Cain because he's lived his whole life in the shadow of God's mercy. As his parents were cast out of the Garden of Eden, what did God do? He showed them mercy. Cain was a testament to God's mercy that he didn't just wipe out human beings that would sin against him. And yet, here it is, Cain has now committed murder, and he's complaining. And as we go into that, and our first reaction is going to be, well, Cain, how can you be complaining in this moment? Let's ask our God to help us to see those places where we do the exact same thing. Because we don't want to just rush into judgment on Cain. What we really want to do is see where this is happening in our own lives. Would you pray with me, please? Father, would you help us? We all struggle with sin. But we struggle to even see your mercy as we sin. Would you help us to understand what you are doing for us? How you are showing us your grace, your care, is we don't deserve it. And would you help us to understand the way that grace and that care points us to you? That we wouldn't just presume on it, but instead we would enter fully into your mercy and experience it in the rich and wonderful way you truly want us to. Lord, we pray this in the precious name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Well, let's dig right into Genesis chapter 4. Here's what we read in verse 13. Cain's been confronted by the Lord, and he says to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Now, in a moment, we're going to look at more of what Cain says, because he explains he knows what the punishment, that he's not going to be able to harvest from the land any longer, that he's not going to be able to use the ground he hoped would just sort of swallow up his brother. He knows what that means for him. He's going to be a wanderer, is what he'll say in just a moment. And in that, he says he's going to be someone who's constantly hunted down. Now, let's just say again, we, we hinted at this in the past weeks, and, and I really believe what we're looking at here is that Scripture tells us some of the important births. We're told about Cain and Abel. We're told later on about Seth, whose line will lead to Noah. But there's every reason to believe there are other children born to Adam and Eve. There are other people on earth at this point. And Notably, people who are still close enough to the beginning that when Cain kills Abel, he's killed a family member. And Cain says, whoa, wait a second, Lord. You're going to say, I can't do what I've been doing. I can't be rooted in this place that everyone knows is mine. So I'm going to be wandering out there. And if I come anywhere near other human beings, they're going to see me as someone who killed a member of their family. And that's going to be horrible for me. I won't know how to do the things that I, I, I won't be able to do the things I know how to do. I don't really know how to survive this way. I'm going to have people who hate me all the way along. And, and if any of us, and, and probably all of us have experienced this, at some point we're trying to figure out how to do something and everyone around us doesn't really want us to succeed at it. Well, we know how hard that is. It's hard enough to learn something new when everyone around us is rooting for us. And Cain says, there's going to be no one around rooting for me. What am I supposed to do? 
He says, this is too much, Lord. Yes, I took another man's life. Yes, I took my brother's life. Yes, I'm the first murderer, but this is too much. I am going to suffer like mad and someone's going to kill me. Bit of an irony there, isn't it? We see all kinds of things being hinted at here, and a lot of it just makes natural sense to us. Of course, if, if someone killed a family member of ours, we're probably not going to be very favorable to them, to put it mildly. And many people, even today, even though it wouldn't technically be legal, would want to take vengeance out upon such a person. But in the ancient world, and we can gather that this is something that Cain can see coming even at the very beginning, it was appropriate to avenge the death of a family member. In fact, in many societies, it's thought that you had to do that in order to demonstrate that your family group, that your tribe, that your city, whatever it might be, was strong enough to resist invasion. And so early on here, that not all that's in play yet. It's going to be later on, and we're going to see some of this in later Old Testament law. But even here, Cain can see what it's how it's going to be. If the Lord says he can hear Abel's very blood crying out on the ground after this, this horrible murder, Cain doesn't have to be the smartest person ever to say, all those people out there that are, are all related to Abel, well, yeah, they're related to me, but they're going to look at me as a murderer and they're going to want to avenge me. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, 1, we read that God sets out places of refuge, cities of refuge for people who commit manslaughter, not murder. Take a look. It says, when the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God possesses. Skipping down to verse 9, there's regulations on this, though, for murderers like Cain. He says, Provided you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I command you today by loving the Lord your God, and by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities to these three, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, so the guilt of blood should be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies, and he flees into one of these cities, and the elders of the, his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of the innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. A lot going on there, but here's the picture that we're looking at. God knows that there's going to be this cycle of vengeance, and he doesn't necessarily want to set a precedent ultimately years later that those who intentionally murder can get away with it. But he also doesn't want people to look back to the situation with Cain and Abel and the degradation of humanity in general and end up creating a situation where anytime someone accidentally kills someone else, that there's vengeance upon them. And so he sets up these cities of refuge. And in a sense, it's related to Cain's situation, even though Cain is an outright murderer, because Cain is going to ultimately wander into a city. And in that place, with everything that's going to play out in this passage we're looking at, God is going to protect him. God is saying it's not optimal that we see constant vengeance. Because what happens? Well, someone avenges a murder, and then 
the other family avenges the killing of their loved one who was avenged against, and it keeps going and going and going. This is something that ethicists in the ancient world talked about frequently because they saw it happening. It was a problem. God wants to shut that down. That's what we see later on. But what's also notable, and you might be wondering, well, why are you talking about manslaughter? We're talking about murder here. The language used here in Genesis chapter 4 is very similar to Deuteronomy 19. And it seems as Moses is composing Genesis and then later Deuteronomy, he's expecting people to make the connection. Why? Because Cain, in some sense, sets the precedent that God cares about mercy. Yes, someone as a, a manslaughter, has killed someone. What do you take from them in exchange for that? Well, you don't take their life. You might take some of their freedom. Yes, they're going to be constricted to this city, but you don't actually kill them. How does God demonstrate that? Well, he goes even further. When Cain comes in and basically, so to speak, is the inventor of murder, he kills the first human being. God shows him mercy. God's showing a picture over and over again throughout Scripture of Mercy, and it is clear, it's blatant right here. The problem is, Cain doesn't get that. The people later on won't get that either. And that's why they need to pull these things together. Cain doesn't get it. What does he do? Yes, he's a murderer. And the people reading this, as Moses writes this, knows there's going to be a law forbidding them from murder. They, they may, as they read this, be also reading what Moses has written about the Ten Commandments and the other laws that God's given him. And so as they read this, they're going to be struck just like we are, that God shows any care at all to Cain. Why doesn't God just eliminate him right here? Because God takes opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to show mercy, even when the person doesn't really get it. And clearly, clearly Cain doesn't. Because what does Cain do? He doesn't say, God, I'm so glad I'm still standing here and I'm not just a smoldering pit here where I once was standing. I am so glad that you're willing to talk to me about this. No, what does Cain do? He says, God, by saying I can't harvest the land any longer, I can't be a farmer any longer, you're ruining my life. I'm going to be running scared. Someone's going to kill me. And we say, Cain, you're so stupid. And then we look at ourselves and we say, I say to myself, Tim, you're so stupid. Because what do I do when I sin? What do I do even when I'm not directly sinning and, and find myself in a bad situation, but I look at all the other sin I do and all the mercy God has shown on me, what do I do? I, I complain to God. I say, God, why are things the way that they are? Why can't it be smoother? Why can't it be more comfortable? Well, God's showing us all kinds of mercy, showing me all kinds of mercy. I just take it for granted. Take a look. There's lots of examples of this same practice throughout Scripture because it's the human condition. Luke chapter 16 we have a, a, a parable there of this rich man who never shows mercy. He dies, and, and what does he do? This very familiar parable about the poor man, Lazarus. The rich man calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Later on, we see this as a report about what happens in Revelation as well. It says, and curse the God of heaven, the people that are condemned by God, for they, for their pain and their sores, they did not repent of their deeds. What do we see over and over and over again? Complaining to God. But the key thing is they don't repent. The key thing back earlier in that parable from Jesus, 
The rich man isn't saying, I'm so sorry I was such a horrible person during my life. No, he just says, well, show mercy on me, as if he deserved it. And that's what we see with Cain as well. And I, I think in that link to the cities of refuge that God will establish in Deuteronomy, God is wanting them to think back to the, the mercy he showed Cain, because some people would have said, God, I thought you were a God of justice and righteousness. Why are you showing mercy even for someone who only committed manslaughter? He killed my brother. He killed my sister. He killed my my parents. He, he did this. And yes, it was just out of thoughtlessness, but I want vengeance. And God wants them to think about the mercy he shows over and over again. And as, as they see that, as we see that, it starts to creep in that, well, how, how have I received mercy? But it's always there, the very fact that we're we're living right now. The fact that we can be here together online studying God's word. It's a picture of God's mercy, but it's so present. It, it, it's the air in front of us. We just take it for granted. It's just there. It's one of the things I find interesting if, if you look back at the etymology, the history of a word. We take the words we speak for granted, at least if it's in our native language. If we're learning a language, it very much doesn't seem the case, but when we speak our own language, we usually just take things for granted. Well, of course we just use that word. A while back, I ran into a history of the word tea, and if, if you're like me, I bet you haven't spent any time thinking about why do we call the beverage we drink that's named tea, tea. Now, if you've learned other languages, though, you may have encountered that not everyone calls it tea. Some people actually, instead of a word that's tea-related, using the letter, the tea sound and so on, might sound more like chai or ka. And you might think, well, I know certain teas like that, but why in other languages do they actually use that to refer to the beverage? Well, it actually seems to go all the way back to early Chinese language, where, where the tea is being imported from, and, and some regions of China, they all seem to have the, a common name for it at one point, but the pronunciation of the letter changed at some point in Chinese history. Sometimes this happens in language. And then a most remarkable thing happened. For some countries, tea was first imported over the Silk Road, over the land, and the people doing that encountered a particular region of China that pronounced it, as you can see on the screen, one way. On the other hand, other people's primary introduction, other countries' primary introduction to tea was by sea as the Dutch sailors brought it from a different part of China whose pronunciation of that letter had changed. And so now today, depending on what language you learn, you just take it for granted. Well, this is what we call that thing. But it has this bizarre history behind it that's just a, a fluke of how pronunciation changes in different regions that then change the way we spell it across languages across the entire world, and you can see where a ship sailed centuries ago based on what we call that thing today. Just take it for granted. Well, God's mercy is so established in the, the language of life that we take it for granted. Well, of course that mercy is there. But do we look at the etymology of it? Do we look at the history of it and say, the fact that there's a human race that's alive today, that we're here today, is the story of God's mercy, of that mercy sailing from country to country over time, that we're here. And so too today, we just take it for granted. How much mercy have I received? How much mercy have you received? Kind of humbling if you actually make yourself think about that for a moment. Even just try to go back to the beginning of January and think of all the things that could have been different, could have been worse, 
And maybe you've had a really bad January even. Still, all the things that could have been different could have been worse. Maybe if, if you live in the areas of, of our world that have been really cold this month for the most part, imagine if you hadn't had any heat. How much worse it would have been, whatever was going and we could come up with so many examples of that. If we've had something to eat every day this month, how much worse could it have been if we hadn't? We start to see these things that God provides over and over again that we just assume. How different that is than another famous figure in Scripture, the thief on the cross. We talked about the thief on the cross briefly during Sunday school last night. I just want you to look for a moment at what he says in Luke chapter 23, 40 to 41. That second thief on the cross, but the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. What did that thief realize? He's in a much worse predicament than any of us have been in. He's being crucified. He's up on a cross right now. And what does he say? Do you realize that the man on that other cross, he shouldn't be there. He says to his, his fellow thief, we deserve to be up here. Jesus doesn't deserve to be up here. And he recognizes that he has no reason to complain. He earned his punishment. God offers mercy to us, though, even when we don't deserve it. And that's what we see in the story of Cain. Genesis 4, verse 14. As Cain continues his complaint, Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold, and the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. God shows Cain mercy. Now, we sometimes might look at this and think, well, that sounds kind of negative. God put some kind of mark on him. Isn't that a bad thing? Isn't that a punishment in itself? But what it really is, is God putting a, a seal of protection upon Cain. Now, was it visible? It seems so. But we have other examples in Scripture where a mark being placed on someone's forehead, for example, is a positive thing. Ezekiel 9, verses 4 to 6, if we were to turn there, talks about how the innocent would receive a mark upon their forehead as protection from God. It's like Cain is being given a special uniform saying, I'm someone that you shouldn't touch. Yes, you know my history, and it's a small world still. There aren't a lot of people. People can figure out who Cain is no matter if he changes his hairstyle or, or whatever. People are going to know who he is. But, but critically, even as they know, they'll also know that the God of the universe is protecting him. And, and so God puts the kibosh on that early push towards vengeance. He says, no, that's not the way we're going to go. And, and that's, again, going back to what God later establishes in the cities of refuge. That's what God does there, too. And that's what God does over and over again. The fact that his people can sin against him over and over again. And there may be judgment. There may be penalties. There may be outpourings of the sin. But God keeps pulling his people back together. He keeps redeeming them. He keeps rescuing them, even when it's self-inflicted. reminds us that God 
offers mercy. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's the heart of Jesus, that, that we recognize that even when we were enemies to God, he showed mercy to us. And that's what registered for that thief on the cross. He's staring there and he sees an innocent man and more. And, and as Jim was mentioning last night, he didn't have all the doctrines of the faith down. He couldn't have. But he did see Jesus and he recognized that Jesus was an innocent man and also more than a man. Because what does he say? He says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. He looked at Jesus, and there was every reason to see him as just another condemned man. But instead, he was reminded of God's mercy. Is that what we do? Or is there just the obvious right in front of us, that mercy right in front of us, but we're so distracted by other things, we don't see it? Let me show you a picture. As you can see, this is a, a Cheetos can. And if you look at that, maybe you've had a can like this. It was a can of, of popcorn. We know these sorts of cans that come out around Christmas time each year where you can get the different flavored popcorns, popcorn uh, in there. And, and sometimes I'm more interested in the can and I've forgotten that popcorn's even in there, but we, we know these cans. And at best, they're something delicious for a moment, but we don't really think of them as of great value. Well, if you look at this can, does it strike you as anything of great value? Probably not, but notice the credit for this particular picture. It's from the IRS. It was of way more value than you might guess. You see, this can was owned by a man named James Zong. And James Zong was one of the early creators of Bitcoin. Not someone who was famous for wisely stocking up a bunch of Bitcoin early on, but he was involved in, in that community. And he claimed to have gathered some Bitcoin that allowed him to live a, a very lavish lifestyle, although it never quite seemed to fit. Anyway, James Zong had this Cheetos can in his house, and, and it looks terribly unassuming. But the thing that the people around James Zong had no idea about is he actually was the greatest Bitcoin thief of all time. Back in 2012, he'd gone to a, a legal black market site that sold various resources on the dark web and sold them using Bitcoin to keep everything anonymous. And he figured out a way to hack the site and to steal what was then hundreds of thousands of dollars of Bitcoin. And being someone who had been involved from the beginning, he understood how Bitcoin worked and he understood how to obscure it. And so he'd taken that stolen Bitcoin and he put them on, put it on various hardware devices around his home, including a little bitty computer he'd hidden in that Cheetos can. But then he held on to it and he found ways to quietly and anonymously sell off little bits of it so he could live a very, very lavish lifestyle. But he had it hidden there on that Cheetos can. Well, when police eventually tracked him down through a fascinating story years later, inside that Cheetos can was $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin. In that can. But how many people, he was famous for holding parties, how many people walked through his house, saw that can there, and didn't even bother with it? I mean, they knew that he claimed to have lots of Bitcoin. But that's just a Cheetos can. What value is it? And so often in life, we're walking by Cheetos cans that are of so much greater value. The very basic needs of life that look so basic, so 
unimportant. We don't even take note of them. They're stocked not with $1.5 billion in Bitcoins, but eternal life itself, the, the love of God itself right in there. It's sort of sad thinking about Jimmy Zong's story. Because you see, the reason he even let out anything about having Bitcoin is that he wanted to make friends and he'd always been very socially awkward. And so he thought he could impress people by buying them lots of liquor and taking them on lavish trips and parties and so on. That way people would want to surround him. Well, by bragging about his wealth and inviting so many people in, someone eventually stole part of his Bitcoin. They broke into his house. They found some container that had some Bitcoin in it. And not thinking anyone would ever track down his great heist, he called the police and reported the theft. Well, that unsolved crime eventually was linked to the IRS trying to track down this massive heist that happened years before. And it ultimately proved his undoing. And it struck me as I thought about him. He was trying to use this resource to somehow get what he thought would bring him happiness in life. People would like him and want to be around him and ended up leading to his demise. He's now in prison. And he missed the point. Because here was someone who was brilliant. He understood Bitcoin so well that he could live off of stolen Bitcoin and not get caught for a decade. Imagine if he'd taken those skills and applied them someplace. Companies would have been falling all over themselves to hire someone with that much brilliance towards cryptocurrency as it's been a hot topic the last few years. Security firms would have wanted him and he would have been fabulously rich anyway. But instead, he felt like he somehow could just impress people with the money and it would all work. But most of the people in town, a lot of them felt sorry for him because they knew that the people that hung around him didn't really care about him. They just wanted the free stuff that he'd give them. He, he was almost there. He saw something in what he, he knew about Bitcoin. He just didn't know how to turn it into something that would last. And I think about that first thief on the cross. The first thief on the cross like Cain just complained. The first thief turned to Jesus and said, you've done all these great miracles, Jesus. Why are you leaving us up here? Just save us and save yourself. And that's where we get that amazing, beautiful statement from the second thief. He looks at the first and says, we don't have any right to complain. He says, I earned this. I just hope Jesus remembers me anyway. And what did Jesus do? He gave him mercy. And that's the, the tragic part of Cain's story. You see, Cain does get a level of mercy. God protects him. But he never gets a fully restored relationship with his God. He gets something that he can store up in his own Cheetos can. And, and maybe he can wave it around. And clearly the story gets passed down of the mark of Cain. But Cain doesn't get restored. The thief on the cross does. He enters, Jesus says, into Jesus' very kingdom. Even though he was a criminal. Even though he surely deserved death. And he said he deserved death. He enters into God's kingdom because he says something more. He says, I don't deserve it, but I want to be with you, Jesus. Imagine if Cain had said that to God back in that moment. God, I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve a relationship with you, but I can't bear the thought of being separated from you. Please let me be in your kingdom. Remember me. And over and over again in Scripture, what do we see? We see that God has mercy he has mercy on all of us all the time, so we have no right to complain. But one step more, we don't want to step just partway there like, like Jimmy Zong did. We need to go that extra step and say, God, I don't deserve to complain. I just want to be in your presence. I just want to know you. Because there we find the greater mercy. We stop one step too soon. How 
sad and unfortunate that is. But let's tonight move a step further and recognize the fuller, greater mercy that God offers each and every one of us. And if you've never trusted in Jesus, tonight would be a great night to say, God, I have this Cheetos can here I've been trying to impress people with. I, I, I even see that some of the things out there, yes, you've had mercy on me in life, but I don't want just a Cheetos can I hope no one ever discovers that unveils my dark past. I, I want to set that before you and say, I don't deserve anything, but I want to know. And for all of us, every one of us, even after we trust in him, may we not get stuck on those complaining moments because even as we receive his full eternal life mercy, we still go right back into that Cain-like attitude and we miss out on the beauty of what God does for us. But may we say tonight, God, I just want to step in and feel your mercy all the more. Let's pray right now that he would reveal that mercy all the more clearly to us. Would you pray with me, please? Father, would you help us to to dwell fully in your mercy. Lord, there's so much mercy around us and yet we complain and we get caught on wanting more mercy, but we don't actually take the step to fully experience your mercy all too often. Lord, would you help us to, to turn more to your mercy, to hold on to your mercy, to experience fully your mercy. And then what do we do? May we be those who want to show mercy to others. We wouldn't get stuck in complaining, and we wouldn't get stuck on how we could take out vengeance, but we would understand that you are a God of mercy who calls us to be a people of mercy. A people drenched in your love, with mercy abounding all over, and a God who calls us into his presence every single day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope this has been an encouragement to you tonight, and if it has, I sure would appreciate it if you would show mercy to those around you. We all do that when we share God's word. And one way you can do that is by sharing this very video. Maybe invite someone to watch it with you. As you click that share button or you subscribe to our channel or our page and you help get out the word about what we're doing here at Little Hills, you are helping more people hear the gospel and hear the good news of a God who has laid out tons and tons of mercy for every single one of us. It's right there for someone to experience be blessed by. If there's any way I can be praying for you this week, feel free to shoot me a text. You can text us at our texting line, which is on screen right now, 833-356-4032. That's 833-356-4032. It's always great to hear from you. Or maybe leave a comment in the comments below. It's great to hear from you there as well. We can pray for each other there. Hope you have a wonderful and blessed week, and I can't wait to see you again next week. Thank you.